In 2013, Colleen Murphy's daughter, Lorne, was hit by a car and suffered severe brain damage. With the help of specialists from all over the country, her family and friends, as well as Colleen's personal strong faith, she was able to piece their lives back again. You do not want to miss this phenomenal miracle story. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, Colleen Murphy, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope, and I can't wait to hear your full story. Now, you are the mother of seven children, which is beyond my <laughs> ability <laughs> to understand. <laughs> Once you have four, they come easy. <laughs> okay. I'll remember that. <laughs> anyway, what I would like you to share, of course, is your story. And let's start at the beginning. Tell us what happened, possibly where you were that day, and everything that surrounds it. So please tell the story about your daughter, Lauren. Sure. So it was a um, Friday. It was April 19th, 2013, and I I had headed out of work just a little bit early because I was going to try to catch my 17-year-old daughter Kelsey's soccer game. She was playing high school soccer. And I left my office, and as I was you know, just merging onto the highway, I got a phone call, um, and it said private number. Now, normally, you know, I don't answer those because it's somebody trying to sell something. But for whatever reason, I answered this one. And there was a man on the phone and he identified himself as a Los Angeles detective. And my daughter, Lauren, lived in New York at the time and she was on a business trip in L.A. I had spoken to her that morning and, you know, got cut off as I was pulling into a parking garage and never got a chance to call her back. And the first thing that he said to me, well, were you related to Lauren Murphy? Now, I don't know about you with your kids, but my first thought was, <laughs> oh, God, what did she do? You know, why are the police of course. calling me? And, you know, he then went on to tell me that she had been involved in an accident and she was hit by a car while out on a morning run. Now, my next thought is, you know, why isn't she calling me? I'm thinking maybe she had a broken bone or two. But as the conversation unfolded, you know, I soon realized that we were dealing with something a little more serious than a broken bone. And at that time, I did ask him if she had head trauma and he said no. Um, but he believed she had some internal injuries and he gave me a phone number of a hospital social worker to call. So that was my next phone call. And again, when she answered, I asked if Lauren had head trauma, you know, looking back, 
I think it had to have been just mother's intuition, you know, because mm-hmm. even though the, the detective had told me, no, she did not, somehow I just knew. And, you know, once she told me that, yes, she had head trauma, I, you know, I worked in the medical field on the insurance side. So I okay. knew, I knew how, how serious this was. And I had to ask a question that I didn't want to ask, but I knew with us being in St. Louis and Lauren being in Los Angeles, I needed to know. And I asked her if Lauren was going to die. And there was a long pause. Yeah, there was a very long pause. And when she spoke, she finally said, if you're asking me if you need to come, the answer is yes. Wow. So, you know, I hung up the phone. I scribbled down all the information. Um, Lauren was in the system as a Jane Doe. It had taken them several hours to even identify her. Um, So... I called my husband, you know, he started working on getting the very first flight he could for us out of St. Louis, out of Lambert Airport, you know, and and we boarded, you know, a plane a few hours later. And, you know, at that time, we did not know if she was even going to be alive by the time we got there. And when we arrived, it was a little after um, midnight, which was two in the morning in St. Louis time. And, you know, when we you know, walked over the threshold of that ICU room, we knew that our lives were never going to be the same again. And it was tough. It was really, really tough. So the story is, you know, it is, you know, it's, it's pretty vast and it's pretty, it's pretty big. And, you know, those first few weeks were touch and go, you know, we did not know if she was going to make it through the night, the week, the day, the hour, you know, we had a couple times, you know, one particular time where her heart rate dropped so low that, you know, they were giving her shots of epi, you know, this is the kind of stuff you see in TV shows, Yes. you know, and they put the pads on her chest and on her back to prepare her body for the paddles. And they brought the crash cart in, you know, and those were the moments that, you know, I just, I was frozen in the corner of the room in my chair. You know, I, 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 you know, I felt like, do I get up? Do I leave? Do I? And all I could do is just grasp my rosary and pray those prayers that you learn. You know, I went all through Catholic grade school and you learn all those prayers and you say them just kind of on autopilot, you know, and you don't really think about them as much as you say them because they just become, you know, part just of you. second nature. Yeah. Yes, they're part of you. But never have I prayed prayers with such devotion and, you know, desperation as in those moments, you know, and as I prayed those prayers to myself, I watched those heart monitors, you know, they descended for so long, and then they just started, you know, going up one, two, three, until we got a normal sinus rhythm. (laughs) And, you know, it was, it was tough. Those were, you know, some of those days just kind of blurred together. It was, it was really touch and go for several weeks. And it, it was probably, probably a good four weeks before, you know, we knew she was out of the woods. Um, but then, you know, our fears came from, you know, is she going to make it through the day to what kind of life is she going to, to have, you know, because she was in a coma for quite a while. And when she emerged from the coma, it was worse. You know, it was, you know, when she woke up, you know, and her eyes were open, you know, I never thought you could, you know, look at somebody that could be so blank, you know, sure. Lights were, I mean, the, you know, the lights were on, but nobody was home. And I would, I remember thinking, you know, God forgive me, but please go back to sleep. It was just too hard to see her like that. And I just thought this can't be it. You know, this can't be her future. And, you know, 
it was hard enough to see her being kept alive by machines and, you know, battered and bruised. But, you know, once the bruising went away and, you know, she had, you know, they, they, they did the tracheotomy. And when they came to me and said that they wanted to do this trach, you know, I knew Lauren would hate it. You know, vanity was really important to Lauren. <laughs> and, but I knew that there was no place for vanity in this ICU room. You know, so we had to do what was best. And they kept telling me she's going to look so much better. You know, all of those tubes are going to be gone from her face. And, you know, I was anxious to walk in because I thought, oh, she's going to look so much better. And she didn't look better. She, to <laughs> me, she looked more broken. You know, Aww. so instead, you know, those tubes are no longer on her in her mouth. Now they're in her neck, which now has a hole in it. So, you know, I, I think to the medical world, it's better. But to a mother, yes. you know, it was it was hard. So, I mean, those those first few, I mean, actually, those first few months were tough, really, really tough. So, you know, from from there, once, you know, she emerged from her coma, you know, it was like I said, it was slow. And, you know, once she was medically stable, she was airlifted by private medical jet to the Rehab Institute of Chicago. And we were very, very fortunate because it is one of the top three brain injury mm. facilities in the country. There's, there's Craig in Colorado. There is, um, there is uh, Shepherd in Atlanta, and then there is RAC that is in Chicago. So we were we were airlifted there, and when she arrived, she couldn't hold her head up. She didn't know where she was. She didn't know who we were. She didn't know, you know, who she even was. You know, she was basically just existing. Yes. And all signs kind of pointed to possibly a future in a nursing home. And that's even what doctors discussed with us at some point, you know, but we knew that we had to give her the best chance that we could and get her in front of the best specialists, you know, and have faith in God, faith in the power of prayer, faith in the power of the human spirit and faith in our own daughter. And, you know, slowly but surely she mm -hmm. started coming back to us. And, you know, and this is, you know, when I say slowly, that's not an understatement. You know, this is, you know, months and months and months of grueling speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, recreational therapy. And Lauren was pretty much nonverbal for almost two years. And, you know, within the first year, she was able to say some of the automatic things, you know, like, hello, how are you? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, things that you don't have to think about. Exactly. Anything that required brain processing, you know, she couldn't do. And at this time, you know, we knew because they had mentioned it to us, but, you know, we didn't even really know much about it, but that she had a condition that's called aphasia. And I didn't know much about aphasia. And, and at this point, early on, we're worrying about, you know, her just surviving, much uh -huh. less the speech and language, you know, deficits that she would have. But aphasia is caused by damage to the brain. And in Lauren's case, was caused because she had that portion of her brain removed when they did the original um, brain surgery. So she had a large section of her left temporal lobe removed, which is where our language center is housed. So not only could she not find her words, she couldn't understand anything we were saying. Mm. So as she emerged, imagine the confusion, you know, yes, she is, you know, her brain is starting to wake up a little bit. And when people are talking to her, it's like they're speaking in German. You know, she has no idea what anyone is, is saying to her. So it was, you know, it was a slow process. And, you know, neuroplasticity is, you know, is, is what got her to where she is today. And the fact that she was young was very helpful. She was 25 at the time of her accident. And in the beginning, you know, that was kind of the only positive they would give us 
is she's young, you know, we'll wait and see. Hmm. And with brain injury, it's different than, you know, if you, if you break a leg, you know, they know, okay, we're going to fix this leg. Right, and right. It's, but when you damage your brain, they have no idea, you know, no two brain injuries are alike. And even if they were alike, the outcomes aren't alike. You know, there's so many factors in what helps somebody do well and what doesn't. And when, when we finally were discharged from inpatient rehab, which was 127 days after her accident accident. The doctor met us in the hallway as we were walking the halls and he said, you know, I don't know what magical combination that you need to, <laughs> to survive this, you know, and, and overcome, but Lauren, you surely have it. And, you know, I, you know, we high fived and I thought, you uh -huh. know, what? I knew I was right. Cause this was the same doctor that told me that she'd probably never walk again. Um, they were working on just getting her to stand and pivot, which is something that they used to mm. try to help patients, you know, transfer from the bed to the wheelchair, to the shower chair, et cetera. But she was walking, you know, when she left, not real steady, but she was right, right. walking and it has been, you know, it has been definitely a journey and, you know, we're skipping over a lot of, um, of a course. lot of the raw details, but, you know, it was pretty desperate. Um, in those early days and early months. So I have a couple questions before we go continue with the story. First of all, were you alone or did you have support? In oh, your yeah. So, yeah, so we had tremendous support, you know, with having seven children, you know, you have to think that with each child, you have a whole network of friends for each soccer team, for each softball team, for <laughs> each school community. So our network, our network was just huge and the community support that we had was unbelievable and people reached out to celebrities and had you know they reached out to us we had um taylor swift came to visit us in the hospital we <laughs> had she donated twenty five thousand dollars to our family to fly our family back and forth from los angeles and chicago and it was just you know unreal but you know celebrities are great and we had sports figures that showed up for us too, people, um, members of the St. Louis Blues and the St. Louis Cardinals. And those are great. But what was even better was the everyday people that, oh. you know, just force and helped us feel like we weren't alone. You know, and there were so many days, especially at RIC, where I would have a really rough day, you know, and I would keep my emotions in check. I gave myself about 10, 15 minutes every single day to go sit on a bench and cry. And then I would wipe my yeah. eyes and go back in and, you know, get down to business. And it was important to me to keep negative energy out of her right. hospital room. And some of those days that were rough, you know, I would walk home. Somebody donated us um, an apartment in uh, Chicago, which was about a mile from RIC, so I could walk back and forth. And we always joke that Lauren picks the most expensive cities to be in. You know, we were in <laughs> L.A., she lived in New York, and now we're in Chicago. So... Um, when we were in Los Angeles, I had to get an apartment and I lived above a garage and it was $4,000 a month for this little apartment oh my that was actually, I think it might've been $6,000 a month. It was oh. a crazy amount. But anyway, so now we're in Chicago, we have this free apartment, but I would walk home some days with my head hung low, you know, when I would pass all of these restaurants, um, you know, that were in downtown Chicago and I would see people and families and laughing and, you know, and I just, you know, I just wanted to scream, you know, it was tough. And I would walk into my apartment and I would get to the doorstep and there would be packages waiting for me or cards from people Aww. that seemed to show up when I needed them most. You know, those, those encouragements that, you know, I just felt like we're never going to get 
get out of this. And then I would receive a letter from somebody that would tell me how, how, how much Lauren's accident has affected them in a positive way. So without the community, I don't think I could have done what I was doing, you know, and a lot of this time I was by myself, you know, because my husband had to take care of the other six kids, you know, and we had a lot of outside help with that. And we had a lot of, especially when we got to the summer months, you know, the kids would take the train up from St. Louis to Chicago. And, you know, so they would stay with me mm-hmm. um, on the weekend. So, so I did have a lot of help from my family, but surprisingly enough, um, and I, I would bet it's pretty common for any type of family that goes through tra- tragedy is it's the people that you don't even know that, you know, mean the most. You get so many cards or emails that start out with, you don't know me, but, and, you know, that's the kind of things where you felt like the whole world had your back. And there's no way you could fail. On the other side of that, did you have to deal, or your husband, with anger and unforgiveness? So as far as the driver, I never had anger there. Um, You know, from early on, I knew that it was Lauren's fault. You know, she had, when she started crossing the street, it still said walk, but it was flashing. And then when the light turned green, there was a truck that was blocking the driver's view of Lauren and her view of him. So, I mean, it it really was like just an accident. Mm -hmm. So there was never any anger towards the driver because I felt like, you know, it, it was an accident. You know, there was, you know, and my husband at one point said, you know, what if he was texting? And I'm like, you know what? I don't care. There was no malice. It was an accident. And to me, I felt like I, I don't need to have that emotion right now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just felt like, Anger is not where it needs to be in this ICU room. But when I got to Chicago, there was a time that she had to have her fourth brain surgery. And we were at Northwestern Hospital, which was just down the street from RIC. And, you know, when we were in ICU, I mean, the care was so great. And then we went to RIC and it's a brain injury facility. And again, excellent care. But when we got to Northwestern, you know, and, and Lauren was on, like a neurofloor, which is, you know, mainly strokes, but it seemed like her deficits were like multiplied by a thousand because the staff just didn't know what to do with her because she was so bad. And, you know, like little things like when she had to have medication on her tongue um, to prevent thrush, which is like a an oral infection mm-hmm. for people that are not eating, they get, you know, infections because they're not using, you know, the rest. she was being fed by a feeding tube at this point. And the nurse would say, you know, stick out your tongue for me. Well, Lauren couldn't understand words, nor could she stick out her tongue, nor could she do anything. And she just like, she didn't know what to do. So it was really, really hard. And Lauren had had her fourth, like I said, her fourth brain surgery. And, you know, my husband was out of vacation days in Chicago all by myself. And I remember just like sitting in that waiting room, just with the tears, just like flowing. And it was hard. It was really, really hard. And, and it was exhausting mentally exhausted, physically exhausting. And after surgery, you know, there was, they ended up, they wanted to keep her an extra night because she had a small brain bleed. And, you know, it was kind of like, oh, it's not a big deal, small brain bleed, (laughs) you know, who would have thought that would be no big deal. But, you know, for Lauren, her, her brain had been hemorrhaging in the early weeks. So the next day they, they took her down for a CT scan um, to see if that the bleeding had stopped. And they came back upstairs and said, you know, they, they couldn't do the CT scan because she couldn't follow directions. And Oh, wow. So I, I opened the door. I, I heard him in the hallway, and I came out, and I said, are we supposed to just guess whether or not her brain is bleeding then? And they kind of looked at me kind of funny, and um, then they, they had me go down with her and you know helped hold her hands where they needed to be or her head where they needed to be, whatever. And 
And this time I was just so frustrated. I was frustrated with being in the hospital. I was frustrated with, you know, crappy coffee, being cold. I'm always cold anyway, when you're in a hospital, it's even more, I was tired of smelling like a hospital. And, you know, and my husband had actually showed up that evening, kind of like my knight in shining armor. Um, that day he ended up kind of like enough is enough. It was hard for him to be away. And he ended up taking a leave of absence from work and hopped on the first plane he could to Chicago and was there, you know, by nine o'clock that night. And, you know, I was like, I was for the first time, I was just angry. I was so angry at everything. I was angry at the situation. I was angry at Lauren. You know, I was thinking, why did you walk in front of this car? Do you see what this is, you know, done to my life? Do you, do you understand what you've done? And then the mother's guilt comes in. Like, (laughs) it's not her fault, you know, and as much as I hate what it's done to my life, what has it done to her life? You know, and then it's like, shame on me. You know, once again, I felt like I was the grand prize winner of the worst mother in the world award. You know, here I am putting my anger towards her, you know, but that was probably my, my angriest moment. It was just, and I think it was, you know, based on, you know, it's just being mentally and physically exhausted. And it was a pretty big turning point for me because I realized, you know, this isn't anybody's fault. This is just what it is. And I need to just figure out how to move forward. I really appreciate you being that raw and that honest. And I'm, I thank you for answering those questions because I know that there are people who are probably relating on some level with you. Now, we are going to hear the rest of the story, but before we do that, we're going to take a short 15-second break, and then we're going to hear what happened next. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Listening to Colleen Murphy's story, I am sure that you are wondering what happened next. Colleen has been raw and been open and honest of both what she was going through along with the story and everything that happened. And so now we want to continue by finding out what happened next. Share with us. Sure. So by the time we arrived home, you know, accident was April. We are now the very end of August and she's now going to start her outpatient journey. And, you know, now I was in charge of everything. And while we were at RIC, I still did a lot of it. You know, I, I, I took over all of her showers and all the things, but I hadn't been in charge of her medication. And so now, now it was all on me, which was the pressure was pretty immense because, you know, I, you know, I had my her through, but, you know, making sure she has her medication and, you know, Lauren, you know, a side effect of the brain injury is she's now an epileptic. So, you know, having her medication on time was very, very important. So it was hard. And, you know, she progressed pretty slow. um, But, you know, we eventually, you know, and again, I'm fast forwarding pretty quickly, because 
brain injury is crazy. And, you know, there's a lot of funny things that happen, but intertwined throughout all of this, we're having our house reconstructed to make it handicap accessible. And, you know, we have to have a, a wheel in shower because like I said, Lauren wasn't really supposed to ever walk again. So this had all been contracted and trying to maneuver her recovery with a construction crew in your house is tough. I'm trying to maneuver teenagers oh, while right. dealing with, yes. a, you know, brain injury. So, you know, my 17 year old, we laugh about it now. Um, you know, she had that whole summer where dad was in charge and he's oblivious to what time she comes home. <laughs> he has no idea what's going on. I've always been the disciplinarian. So, you know, even though life was pretty tragic, it was for, uh, you know, for a young girl that's, you know, going into her senior year of high school, you know, she had a lot of freedom that she normally didn't have. So we had a lot that we were dealing with, but, you know, we, you know, as a family, you know, rallied together as best we could. And, you know, just kept pushing forward. And we also went to different specialists all over the country. We went to an aphasia specialist, which was intensive speech therapy. Um, And that was six week programs in St. Petersburg, Florida. We were lucky that we were able to do that on three different occasions. We also went to a brain injury facility that teaches independence. And that was in Omaha, Nebraska. My kids make fun of me because you know, we sent Lauren to this place to learn independence, but I also went with her and rented a furnished apartment <laughs> like 10 <laughs> miles down the road because I just wasn't prepared to send my daughter who was, you know, not able to speak fluently to a place. I needed eyes on her every single day. Right, right. So, you know, I spent, you know, seven, eight months in Omaha with her and, you know, just everything that we could do to try to help piece her back together and have some sort of, you know, a normal life. You know, this was kind of our new normal, but it was, you know, it was really hard. And my youngest two kids were 11 and 13 at the time of the accident. Hmm. So, you know, I spent a lot of time away and my husband is, you know, amazing. You know, I, I make fun of him a lot in my book. Um, (laughs) But uh, he's an easy target, but but I could not have done what I did, you know, without him. And he really stepped up and learned how to, you know, look up kids' grades online and do the school supply shopping. And actually, they preferred that because they just bullied him. <laughs> they got top of the line, everything as far as school supplies, no budget. But, you know, we just really had to change, you know, our way of life and, and do the new normal. But, you know, today, you know, Lauren has, you know, come so far. You know, she was, she's definitely a walking miracle and she has run 38 5Ks since the time of her accident. Um, And, you know, she, we do public speaking together and, you know, it's still, you know, it's her speech. She's very conversational, but she lost her ability to read and write. Um, She can read small phrases. So when we do these speeches, you know, we try to gear them towards, you know, individual people and groups, but when we change that, we just change my part to make it easy. So as far as, you know, brain injury goes, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And and when we first started doing this, you know, we would go through this, then we would record it, then we would play it back, then we would do it again, and we would do it just dozens of times, and we would start over, and I'd be like, does any of this sound remotely familiar to you? Because we have been doing the same thing over and over again, and (laughs) she would never get it right. It was kind of like Dory from Finding Nemo. But you know, eventually something stuck and, you know, she has a sense of purpose again, you know, because she's able to, you know, do these things and her life looks, you know, she lived in New York, she lived in Manhattan and, 
life is different now. You know, she lives with her parents and she watches, you know, her younger siblings, you know, now doing things that she was doing at the time and, and getting married and having babies. And it's, it's hard, you know, but it's, her life is not how she envisioned it, you know, but it's still great. And, you know, I'm not a fan of the phrase, everything happens for a reason. I know some people are. Um, and I talk about it in the book too. And I'm like, I'm not offended when people say it. And I almost like want to laugh because I feel like when they read my book, they're gonna be like, Oh God, I said that to her. And I'm not offended <laughs> by it. But I feel like when it's your child, you can't think that there's any good reason that this happened. I do think some positive things can come from bad things. Exactly. But I, there is no way anybody will ever convince me that, you know, there is a good reason that this happened, you know, and it's, I think if it happens to yourself, it's different. But as mothers, you know, we just want the easiest possible route for our children. And she took the hardest route that she could, Uh, but she's happy and she's happy now. And I think that's what we all want for our children, right? Is that for them to be happy in whatever capacity that is, you know, as we just want them to be well-rounded, happy, good, kind people. And, and that she is. I really appreciate what you said, and I am in total agreement with you. And I don't necessarily, you know, believe that it happened for a reason either, along with many of the things that in my own life and many of the listeners that are listening in their lives. But it's what you do with it, what you make of it. And that's what you said. So even though there might not have been any unforeseen reason that this happened, and maybe you know, you can look at it from any perspective, right? But you are sure. still looking at it from a positive perspective that, yeah, this happened. It was terrible. But, and that's the message that you're giving, not that, oh, I guess it had to happen in order for such and such to happen. So sure. I hear you loud and clear. And I appreciate <laughs> you saying that 100%. Now, before we talk about your book, I want to read this, and then you can share, if you would please, about your book. But you sent this to me via email, and it really made an impact on me, and I would like to read it for the audience, and then you respond. There are several low points I talk about in the book, but one that stands out was when Lauren was an inpatient at RIC, and they sent her to Northwestern Hospital for a CT scan. The nurse at RIC did not stay with her. Lauren was still medically fragile, and I was inept at caring for her. She had C. diff, and I had to try and clean her without help. Once I finished, she began vomiting, and I had to launch myself across the metal bars of the bed to try and hold her head up, so she didn't choke. I was soaked in vomit and scared. A while later, the doctor finally came in to give me the findings of the CT scans and to let me know that Lauren would need a fourth brain surgery. Suddenly, the fact that I was soaked with vomit through my bra, I was freezing, and I had a bag full of diarrhea-covered clothes seemed rather insignificant. And that is precisely what you have just shared, that you had your priorities straight. Mm-hmm. And so now just tell us about your book and whatever you would like to share about that. Sure. So the book, I'm like, I'm really, really proud of it. And, you know, it's been out for about a year. And, you know, I thought my mom would buy a couple copies and that would be the end of it. But it's actually <laughs> done really, really well. At Christmas time, um, my husband sent me a picture. He was in Barnes and Noble and it was on the shelf there. And I almost, you know, I almost fell over. Mm. Um, but really well. And, you know, for me, the book is the book that I wish I would have had. 
when, mm. you know, this all happened. Right. And I would read so many books on brain injury and it would, you know, brain in- injury is a pretty big scale. You know, it's, you know, concussion to this, you know, pretty severe. And I would read so many books and the person would wake up from their coma and they're, you know, talking to their families, you know, within a week. Right, like, that, right. that wasn't what it looked like. So I wanted to put the reality in, in brain injury, but also have, you know, a positive, you know, note on it. So throughout the book, you know, and I talk about the hard stuff, it's pretty raw. But I try to end every passage where I talk about the hard stuff mm. with either something positive or something funny. And my writing style has always been um, kind of like old school Irma Bombeck. You know, I try to find <laughs> the funny in everyday life. And that's why I think it took me so long to write this book. You know, and I started writing, you know, right away. But when I look at those early passages, they were pretty dark. You know, there wasn't a lot that was funny at the time. And looking back, there were funny things that happened. Mm. I just wasn't prepared to see them. And so I had to wait till I was I was about six years removed from Lauren's accident before I could find the funny, you know, and it was there that whole time. But I just wasn't ready to see it yet because I was still kind of cloaked in sadness for so long. So once I finally decided to write the book, it ended up only taking me 67 days from start to finish. Oh so it was my editor was like, slow down, lady. <laughs> you know, So he couldn't keep up with me. And it is it's raw. It's real. It's funny. You know, and, and my favorite thing that, you know, feedback that I get from people is that, you know, that they're laughing and crying on the same page sometimes. Mm. And, you know, it's there are so many sad parts of her story and so many tragic things that I thought, you know, they needed to be included. But there's so many triumphant things in, in this story and so many in between. And with, you know, with a big family, there is lots of material there and lots of, you know, funny stuff. Like I mentioned before with teenagers, you know, I'm dealing with a daughter in diapers, you know, a 25 year old daughter in diapers. And I'm also at the same time, you know, going to the closet to get supplies and I'm finding wine bottles stuffed in soccer socks. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot, you know, in, you know, a lot of stuff intertwined in there. And but in the end, you know, it shows the dysfunction that we went through, but it also shows the love that we all had and the love of the Mm. outside of the outsiders. So it's a love story. Um, but it's also, you know, it's also a comedy and it's also a tragedy and it's, you know, it's got everything in there and, you know, the feedback has been great and I'm, I'm super proud of it, but you know, one of the things I hate the most is when people tell me, you know, she wouldn't be where she was without me and how great I am. And, you know, I know the ugly parts of me and I know the parts where, you know, I wasn't so great you know, in the days that I had enough and maybe I wasn't as nice to her as I should have been, you know, not in the early days, but like later, you know, Uh like uh the five year mark when I'm crabby and, you know, she's, you know, you know, she's got pretty bad OCD now because of the accident. And, you know, the days where I'm just like, I don't want to go get you another chapstick. You have seven, you know, so (laughs) there's a lot of things in there that I'm not as patient as I should be, but I put it all in the book, you know, the real part. And I thought, you know, finally people are going to stop saying how great I am because they're going to see I'm not so great. But honestly, it did the opposite. I think people appreciated that. Yes, because it was real. So I thought, you know, finally, I'm going to hear. Yeah, you're but now it's like, no, now I'm relatable. So I think that's why, you know, the book has done so well is because I was so brutally honest and so raw. 
you know, and in the end, you know, I'm not a terrible person. I'm not a terrible mother, but am I the best mother in the world? Absolutely not. You know, am I, you know, covered with mother's guilt? And, and, you know, it's also hard because my focus was all on Lauren. You know, I had six yes, other of kids course. that, you know, one of my daughters got engaged right after the accident. So, you know, was I as present as I could have been planning that wedding? You know, probably not, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's raw. It's like I said, it's real. And it's, it's got, you know, all of, you know, all of life's problems tucked into, you know, just a couple hundred pages. But I think people will close that book and think I can do anything I set my mind to. And then I think it's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. And I think too, you know, when I first wrote it, I thought, you know, this will be good for people that have brain injury or people that have aphasia. But I almost think it, it's it's better for people that that don't. I mean, I think you learn a lot, but I think people with brain injury and aphasia, they all have their own story, and I think they could learn from the story. But I think it's better for anybody that just has anything hard that they're going through, you know, and it kind of gives you the steps. You know, we have like the five keys on, you know, how we maneuvered through life during this thing, and they're universal. It's show up, find your cheerleader, Kindness is free, work hard, and never give up, you know, and those are lessons that all of us, you know, can can learn from, and, and they're intertwined throughout the book and different things that people did for us, and I think, you know, and it also is used as a learning tool. A couple schools are using it, um, SLP, speech language and pathology students, it's required reading for um, some in their curriculum. Wow. There's also a high school that's using it. Um, it's funny because one of the teachers, the English teacher that is using it for one of his senior high school English classes, he said, the kids said, she's kind of mean to her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and we both laughed and I'm like, they're not married yet. They'll get it. <laughs> like they'll, they'll totally understand in a few years. But so it's, it's, it's become so much greater than what I had ever imagined. Wow. And I think it really is a universal story that, you know, it is, um, you really do. You close that book and you think, wow, you know, you know, my problems don't seem so bad right now. Um, and if I come across something that is tough, you know what, I can do whatever I set my mind to. What I was going to ask you is if you would summarize and you did it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was perfect. And I also wanted to ask you what the basic message was you wanted the audience to hear. And you've already shared that too. So I yeah. thank you. And your book is available on all the regular platforms. It is. It is. We also have it on my website if anybody okay. would like a signed copy, which is murphystoquit.com. Okay, and that'll also be in the show notes so people can connect with you there. So sure. one final question. Is there anything you want to personally say in summary? Um, I think basically the the most important message, especially for somebody that's, you know, going through something really tough, you know, with a family member, so just hang in there, you know. Things may not be better tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. But one thing I can guarantee, you know, is on your darkest days that, you know, tomorrow the sun is going to come up and everything's a little bit better. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And thank you, Colleen Murphy, for being on Never, Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. 
Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.